Um, I think that we can talk about white supremacy as a an idolatry in our society, as a kind of principality or an idol, which is that all of these idols, these principalities, these sort of big structural systemic forces have a kind of life of their own. They may have been created by human beings, mm. but they also devour human lives. Um, mm. They demand human sacrifice. When we talk about white supremacy, it's not necessarily about an individual failure to act or an individual mm. action. It's about this great death-dealing system that functions, as all sins do, rather like inertia or gravity, which is that it is kind of the default state of being unless we strive against it with all our heart. hosted by the DSA, Democratic Socialists of America. This podcast is specifically actually hosted through the Religion and Socialism Working Group. Uh, DSA has many working groups, labor, uh, media, tech, what have you, and there is a religious working group, for those of you who do not know. My name is Sarah New, and together with my producer, Devin Brisky, we host and conduct deep dive interviews with religious activists and thinkers on radical politics and faith. So today we have for you probably one of the most interesting conversations we've had to date and very densely packed um, with Shay O'Reilly. Shay, I think I connected with Shay initially over Twitter um, and he's an organizer who works on renewable energy issues in New York City. He's a graduate of Union Theological Seminary, an active member of an evangelical Lutheran Church in America congregation, a mainline congregation, and also is a DSE member who participates in New York City DSA's Eco-Socialist Working Group. So um, this conversation, we really kind of went right into it. Like we talked about some really personal stuff. We talked about spiritual demonic forces. We talked about the ways in which national security is coupled with our kind of ex- exploitative capitalist um, growth model. And I think you'll hope you'll find it very interesting. A quick update on the Patreon front. We are trying to post a bit more regularly um, the full unedited uh, audio files on Patreon, as well as just outside of Patreon, just post interviews a bit more regularly and maybe spend a little less time trying to be, um, you know, super fine-tuning over the quality of the audio. So you might notice that with some future episodes. But thank you so much for everyone who has been supporting us online uh, through sharing our episodes. We average, like, quite a few, uh, I think on SoundCloud, we have at least 5,000 listens per episode, which is remarkable. Um, and also, obviously, people who support us financially as they're able to, thank you so much. I hope you enjoy this conversation. My name is Shay O'Reilly, and I am an organizer for a large environmental nonprofit, but I won't say the name here because I'm not speaking as a representative of it. Um, I'm also a Lutheran uh, and an eco-socialist. Can you elaborate what does eco-socialism mean? Yeah, so eco-socialism is a tradition that basically takes the best of the socialist tradition and looking at the failures of capitalism um, and the sort of historical materialist development of capitalism and understands that uh, a lot of the problems of capitalism end up being problems of exploitation of nature. Um, It also builds on a lot of socialist tradition, including Marxism and kind of other tendencies to look at how they do or do not provide for a more expansive and holistic vision of how capitalism is destroying the earth and the people who rely on it. So it pulls from a variety of traditions to look at that um, and really offers up this anti-capitalist critique. Now, I'm going to be super clear and say that I think that um, I actually really hesitate to kind of baptize any sort of secular political ideology. So I won't say that, like, I think that all Christians should be eco-socialists or that eco-socialism is a Christian ideology. Mm. I will say that I think it offers the best critique of capitalism that you can have. Can you talk to me about that hesitancy? Why? Sure. Um, So I think that in general, um, Christianity offers a critique of existing power um, and of all of the ideologies uh, you might call them powers and principalities in the biblical language that um, destroy human dignity uh, and that get in the way of us celebrating and appreciating God's great love for us. Uh, and I think that any sort of secular ideology can become one of these powers and principalities. 
So there are a lot of um, theologians who are writing in America in the mid 20th century, um, very, very strong critics of war and of empire and of capitalism who were saying things like, you know, that they believe that their, their role would be to be dissenters in any tradition or political system that arose. So I think that even in a sort of socialism where we had accomplished the end of capitalism and a more holistic um, living within nature and helping nature to thrive and flourish, uh, that we would still, as Christians, need to be strong critics of the prevailing forces of society. Yeah, or also sometimes strong critics of the church, which right. can be a very <laughs> dehumanizing, um, very dehumanizing ideologies. I'm curious, you're a member of DSA, I guess, I suppose you do eco-socialist type activism, organizing uh, within that. And sometimes I think one of the critiques of um, like very leftist stuff is that it can be a kind of like fundamentalism in the sense mm. that there's an in-group and out-group and you have to believe the pure doctrine. If not, you're like impure in some ways. Um, you know, and, and there are all these ways in which socialism does in some ways parallel some religion in other ways, whether it's like there are songbooks, there's kind of a global history that connects you to different parts of the world. Um, there's a way in which we're all collectively bound in the same position. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm thinking particular Christianity, obviously, but um, but it can also be you know similar in bad ways. So how do you have that? How do, how do you engage as part of the left while having that kind of skepticism about the ways in which the left can be blind to its own flaws? Right. So I think that it's it's funny that you compare it to religion, and I guess this is like very much the perspective on kind of fundamentalist religion, but I actually think that my Christianity helps to disrupt some of those tendencies in my left work. Mm. Um, and specifically I'm thinking about the, like, it's really helpful for organizing to understand that like, the world does not rely on you being right all the time and on never <laughs> fucking up. <laughs> um, and that in fact, like all of us are embedded in these great systems and, and have these sort of, um, the infection of sin we might say in everything that we do and in everything that we are and everything we pursue. So I think that there's a great humility that Christianity calls us towards. We're talking on Ash Wednesday, so mm -hmm. I think that it's a really appropriate time to remember that. Um, and I also think too that like, I come from, so I kind of grew up in a sort of activist tradition, um, but have become really more focused on organizing. And I think that there are some really profound differences between the two. I think that a lot of times, people on the left and on the right, but I think it's more apparent on the left, believe that being correct makes us win. Right. Um, that like, it's, <laughs> it's enough like, to it's be like right. school. <laughs> right, right, it's exactly like school. Like all, like a lot of, I don't know about you, but like a lot of my comrades are like super smart, like kind of like really earnest nerds and I love them and I'm also a really earnest nerd, but like I had to learn that just being like a smart kid and being like, knowing my shit didn't mean that I could affect change, mm. right? And like a lot of the work of organizing is to meet people where they are, um, to realize that like none of us came out of the womb like knowing what uh, a good critique of capitalism was um, and being able to resist these systems of oppression and domination. Um, and that our kind of job is to develop leaders and to like help people connect their personal experiences um, with this broader critique and this systemic understanding. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's what I kind of try to um, align myself towards on the left. And like, I still fall victim a lot to like that kind of um, self-righteousness. And um, I think there's a performance that goes with it too. Like it's super tempting, especially as somebody who like, maybe doesn't always feel comfortable in all these spaces or feels a little awkward or sort of um, left out uh, to, try and like prove how smart you are. Yeah. Um, and that means like hewing to a particular line or like criticizing other people for not being as ideologically pure. Um, and so I think that it's something that is this like thing that we have to struggle against. Uh, but I think that reminding ourselves, and for me, like reminding myself that like being right doesn't get you into heaven. <laughs> and, uh, and also that being right doesn't mean you socialism. Right, um, right. Is, is a helpful thing to remember. D do you, feel like you're able to do that type of organizing uh, within DSA or does it occur more outside of your DSA work? So my role in DSA is a little complex because I um, have a public facing role in my day job and mm. I 
that limits the amount that I can have a public-facing role in DSA organizing as well, especially when it comes to environmental issues, um, just which is kind of where I choose to put my time. Um, and so I do a lot of like helping people understand our bonkers energy system and like mm -hmm. feeding people information and stuff like that. But I, I have met, and this is contra to like recent reports about New York City DSA, um, I have met people who are genuinely concerned with how we get free and that is their mobilizing and mm. motivating factor and i think that they are dedicated organizers who are still learning like all of us are still learning yeah. um and who have a very passionate um understanding of what it takes so i trust my comrades in dsa <laughs> um like i trust them very very deeply mm. and i know that they're interested in pursuing the same things that i am you seem to be a very nice person. <laughs> very generous read and people. No, it's good. I mean, yeah, we have been in the news a lot. Um, for some people, the problem of climate change feels is more nebulous because there are a lot of like very real material things around like police brutality mm -hmm. or, um, you know, immigration stuff where people are literally being deported. Uh, can you, for, for you, you clearly see climate change as really, as you mentioned, um, kind of connect it to histories of colonialism, histories mm -hmm. of racism. So can you, for people who maybe like care about it, but maybe don't know how, don't really know where this fits into the instance of their larger um, political worldview, can you just connect some of those dots for them? Yeah, so I'll say that the climate justice um, movement is a movement that draws the lines between these things. It's a movement led by women of color, in particular indigenous women um, all around the world who recognize these things as interconnected. And everything that I'm going to say is stuff that I've learned from them. Mm -hmm. um, so please check out the Climate Justice Alliance. Donate to them if you can. Mm -hmm. uh, they're fantastic. Um, so we see the ways in which this is reproduced often happen on the granular scale. And I think that people get con like attain consciousness of climate change through experiences with pollution, for example, yeah. where these polluting power plants, which also contribute to climate change, are located in poor communities and communities of color. The fossil fuel industry, the main driver of climate change in our world, um, is based on this ideology of extraction, right? You extract the fossil fuels from the ground, you burn them, and then you dump the remnants wherever you can. And because we're in a capitalist system, you dump those remnants in communities that cannot resist them. Um, you burn them in places that can't fight back, and you extract them also from places that cannot fight back, whether it's Appalachia and coal mining, uh, whether it's the delta in Nigeria, um, where Shell has been extracting oil for many years and murdering indigenous activists, um, whether it's other kind of resources from various mines across the planet that are located in ind indigenous communities, that is where capital locates these places. Um, they're actually indigenous people who believe very strongly that there's no coincidence that reserves uh, that these fossil fuel reserves are located in sacred places for them mm. that they believe that in part these places are sacred because of all of the generations of animals and plants that came before mm. uh, and that the mere extraction of these fossil fuels is itself harm to these sacred places regardless of the pollution it causes mm. but is also in some ways like stealing from these sacred reserves um so that's the idiot that's the ideology that connects all these things right is this this extraction economy and this is also an economy that extracts labor from people and it extracts human life where it can right like when we talk about the prison system uh, when we talk about um like the exploitation of workers in the working class um which is multiracial in its characteristic right and is actually mostly you know people in the service industry who are women of color and other mm -hmm. people of color um and so i think that like those deep systemic connections are part of it and they appear in very concrete and specific fights over experienced material conditions so here in new york city right like we have a bunch of really noxious gas and oil fired peaking plants they are plants that are supposed to come on at times of peak demand that's why they're called peaking plants um, and the new york city environmental justice alliance has been campaigning against them since they were put in place in 2000. these plants were put in place following the um, rolling brownouts in California caused by Enron, if you remember that, that's a mm. real deep cut, which was not a shortage of electric generation capacity, right? But was instead these market, these finance guys trying to wring money out of consumers uh, through these tricks that of course caused real harm. So in response to that, before we realized it was all these finance guys, um, 
various entities invested in building these new power plants. Oh. These plants in New York City were supposed to be open for three years and to only run at times of peak demand. They are exempt from emissions regulations because they are so small and they were only supposed to run now and then. Um, so they emit large quantities of public health threats and hazards. Um, they are still open today. Hmm. It is 19 years later and they are still open today. And there are people who've been fighting for 19 years to get these plants closed down. Um, and if you map them... Where are they located in New York? Uh, most on the East River. Okay. Um, they're all in communities of color and low-income communities. Um, I think there's one in Staten Island as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Sunset Park is one of the areas. Williamsburg. Um, Astoria, I think, has a few. Some of them are on barges. Uh, Got it. And they all... If you map... If you look at a map of communities that are affected by um, these public health impacts of these polluting power plants and a map of communities that are dealing with mass incarceration. The map is essentially the same. Um, and one of the interesting solutions that, that's being proposed, and I am not gonna get fully behind it because we need to consult with people who have been fighting against Rikers Island for so long, but um, a CUNY professor has done a study that shows that if once Rikers closes down, you put solar panels on a quarter of the island, it could replace all of the power from these dirtiest power plants in the city. And if we can own that have the oh. community own that? Rikers Island, by the way, is a jail. Jail right. for people who are not in New York City. Sorry, I'm being super, super chauvinistic <laughs> here about New York City. It's a horrible jail. Um, most yeah. people in it have not been convicted of any crime, but they're there because they're poor and they can't play, mm-hmm. pay bail. Um, you know, Khalif Browder was a young man who was 16 who was incarcerated at Rikers Island for many months, um, was released finally, and um, he was accused of stealing a backpack. He was released because he was innocent and he killed himself because of the trauma that he'd experienced in that prison. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody's going to be like, it's not a prison, it's a jail, whatever. I don't care. Uh, in that jail. <laughs> um, so there's an effort right now to close down Rikers. People have been campaigning for it for years. Right now there are people organizing to try to stop that from changing into new jails. Um, but if you replace the jail uh, on a quarter of the island with solar panels, you can replace these dirty power plants. And that could be, I mean, I'm saying this like fully conscious that um, it's not my call whether this amounts to it. Yeah. But some people have suggested that that could be a form of reparations mm-hmm. if the community can own those solar panels. And it's not owned by a giant utility, yeah. but instead owned by these communities who have been harmed. That would be fascinating. Um, that would be like an awesome, materially and symbolically, I feel like, a beautiful thing. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about, I think... Well, we've talked previously, you grew up Unitarian, mm-hmm. a more kind of maybe secular, yeah. progressive Unitarian. And then you have this somewhat conversion experience. Can you talk us through that a sure. little bit? So as you said, I grew up in a inner ring suburb of Washington, D.C. in a Unitarian Universalist church, um, which my parents have been going to for t- over 20 years. So we started going when I was nine. Um, and I was content with that growing up. Um, I didn't necessarily have a happy home life uh, and kind of struggled somewhat with um, fitting in 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 youth group and stuff like that. Um, But I was really interested in religion generally, and I'm grateful for my Unitarian upbringing in introducing me to a wide variety of religious experience and tradition. Um, So Anyhow, I went off to college and I ended up at the University of Iowa um, and I was going to a small UU church there, uh, really liking it, um, got along very well with the minister, um, had some good friends there, and but I was studying religious studies and I found myself kind of slowly drifting away from Unitarian Universalism. And there were a few reasons for that. One of them is that uh, I was starting to recognize that a lot of times when we have very general theological commitments, I think that we end up substituting certain cultural norms for those commitments. So for example, if you don't define your theological anthropology, like what it means to be a human being on this earth at this time, um, and how that's related to kind of the ground of all being or the greater good, um, you tend to hew towards the dominant social understandings of anthropology that are implicit in your class background and your racial background. So I was starting to realize, and I was uh, living on not a lot of money, um, had a kind of difficult time coming out, uh, that a lot of the Unitarian Universalist 
things I was hearing in church and sermons and kind of liturgy and stuff like that was very much a product of a sort of bourgeois white Mm -hmm. culture rather than an actual religious tradition in some ways. Um, And that was making me feel alienated and isolated from it. I think it still was very heterosexual in some ways, or if not heterosexual, very like heteronormative. Um, And I began to be curious about something else. In addition, I was also uh, living at the time in a housing cooperative with a bunch of leftists, uh, sort of really classic, good, hardcore, like industrial unionists, um, IWW members who were in a state of pretty extreme despair about the world. Uh, They had been involved in anti-war work uh, like I had as a child. Um, and they were really frustrated and feeling um, very kind of bleak about the state of things. Uh, and at the same time, I was starting to learn about people like Father Daniel Berrigan, um, who had this amazing record of doing profoundly risky from a personal perspective, self-sacrificial action, and sustaining it for the long haul uh, in a way that was powerful and hope-filled and joy-filled in many cases. And I was really interested in kind of what they had that allowed them to do that. And it was such a part of their faith Hmm. that I became really, really curious about like what it was. Um, So you had these kind of two things going on. And then I had this experience of um, like a sort of absolute personal encounter with evil where I was deeply harmed by somebody who I had cared about. Um, and it was related to my transition, and I won't describe it in depth, but um, I had this sort of rupture experience that I was not prepared to encounter in any way, shape, or form by mm-hmm. my Unitarian upbringing, um, in part because how of how Unitarian Universalism talks about evil. Right. Um, and I... Which, which tends to be more kind of broad systems as opposed to kind of more personal accountability, I presume. That's okay. right, yeah. A lot of broad systems, not a lot of personal accountability, and also a lot of, like... I think that a lot of Unitarians, especially of like the generation of my parents, for example, were really concerned. They were defectors from Christian traditions and they were really interested in escaping from these dominant conceptions of sin in their very repressive churches. And so I think that as a consequence, they were really afraid of talking about sin as something that was active and vital. Mm -hmm. Um, And instead they wanted to talk about things like messing up or like, you know, falling short or things like that. And having experienced a like episode of pretty extreme personal violence, like Mm. person to person violence that was connected with these deeper systems, um, really made me feel like I just, this tradition wasn't true. Like it was something that was so different that gave me nothing to understand Mm. what I went through. Um, that I felt like there wasn't truth there because what had happened, like this is part of trauma, right? Is that when you go through trauma, you actually have an experience of something that feels much more real than a lot of other things that have happened to you. And sometimes that flips, right? Sometimes the traumatic moment feels like an episode of unreality, but the way that trauma works is that it's, it feels, and the way that it functions in your brain is that it feels like it's on a different plane of existence from the rest of your world. And so I went through this thing that felt absolutely real and like shattering to me. And I did not, have the theological language to understand it and to respond to it. Mm. And I don't say this to like say that I felt like victimized by that lack of language, but to say that that for me was a recognition moment that there was something deeper that was true and I wasn't getting it. And so I sort of started, these threads kind of converged. Um, I'd been really interested in the ministry. Uh, I have kind of always felt a little call to it, which I'm negotiating with God, um, <laughs> which I know is very unbiblical of me. Actually, it's very biblical. People do that all the time right, in the Bible, right, right. but you're not supposed to. Anyways, um, I was negotiating. I, so I had felt called to the ministry and I'd applied to go to seminary and um, ended up deciding to attend Union Theological Seminary. And I um, was reading theology in the Library of Congress uh, during the month before I started at Union. And I had found my way to William Stringfellow, who was a mid-20th century uh, lay theologian in the Episcopal Church, who was a dear friend of the Berrigans. That's how I knew who he was. And I was reading uh, his book, which was called An Ethic for Christians and Other Aliens in a Strange Land. And the way in which he was describing 
evil, the power of death, idolatry, and these systemic evils in human society uh, was so absolutely true to me that when I read what he was talking about in regards to the resurrection, I like had this epiphany moment. I was like, all of this is true. Um, Jesus Christ really did, like, was the incarnate God, uh, lived on earth with us, died on the cross and was resurrected in bodily form and in that resurrection defeated death once and for all. Um, and I remember very clearly in seminary orientation taking that moment where I was like, I actually don't fit in with this Unitarian group. I'm going to go over here to the like weird Christian don't know where we belong group right now. So that was kind of my conversion experience. Wow. It's very helpful to hear that because, you know, coming from a more conservative background, I think sometimes, uh, I don't always appreciate, I think in some ways, the some of the paradigms and structures that can be very useful in just explaining human experience. Right. The, what was it like, I guess, to be, in some ways, like a literal Je- believer in Jesus' death, life, resurrection, yeah. as well as the, kind of this leftist at the same time going through seminary and all that stuff? I mean, like, it was super weird. Like, I, <laughs> I always joked that I was the most, one of the most theologically conservative and uh, politically leftist people. Um, and I had a lot of professors and TAs kind of comment that on my papers. Um, mm. But I think that it's a combination that makes a good amount of sense, right? Like, I think actually that um, there are parts of the Bible that read like they could be Karl Marx, you know? Like, <laughs> right, you look right. at James 5, and it's like, weep and wail, you rich people, for the miseries <laughs> that are coming upon you. Um, because you kept back the wages from your laborers by force, I right? Saw, I saw a Tumblr post where someone was like, I thought this was some, like, labor screed. Oh, it turns out it was from the Bible. <laughs> like, someone <laughs> right. just posted the quote, and then, like, it said James at the end. <laughs> right. but, yeah. But that's, but, like, that's, I mean, it's it's real. Like, that critique is there. And I know that, you know, one of the big things I learned in seminary is that we're always doing theology in response to somebody else, right? Um, and I think that it's, I understand, and I'm, like, I try really hard to not be too self-centered about it because I think that that's a, a tendency with our theological work is to be like, I am responding to liberal Christianity. And so my critique is very steadfast of this tradition. Um, but meanwhile, I'm ignoring like all of the theologies that have like caused serious harm to people in my community. Right. Um, and I think that like, I take, I so take for granted that God loves me and that God pulled me from death into life after my transition because mm-hmm. I'm transgender. Um, and that God has, kind of always kept God's promise to me and that God's faithfulness is absolute, uh, that I don't have the experience of growing up in a conservative church and feeling like, like worrying that, that I am sinful because I love men and because I am, I don't identify with the gender I was born as, um, the gender I was assigned at birth. And I, um, I want to be really understanding and to be more and to accommodate folks for whom that's their experience and I don't know if I always succeed but um, <laughs> none of us always succeed at all of our kind of high-minded ambitions of course right? of course well I'm curious you you have a very extensive tattoo on your right arm is this uh let me see if I can read it uh oh wretched man that I am who will save me from this body of death St. Paul wow this is the mo- you're basically like a catholic <laughs> so this is uh this is me um committing to being a lutheran actually um and so i'll describe it for our listeners uh so it is a stained glass style it's actually from a stained glass window in i believe toronto canada hmm. um, and it's an image of saint paul um and mostly in grayscale but with a couple of hints of color um and overlaid onto it it has the that's this verse from romans um, which is part of this beautiful passage, I think, that talks about, you know, I do not do the things I would do, and mm. the things I would not do, I do. Yeah. Um, and sort of describes what it's like to be uh, stuck in the state of sin, reliant on God's grace to save you. Um, I mean, I always describe St. Paul as my problematic fave. Like, I think that he's just like, <laughs> I, I understand <laughs> uh, I understand how much damage he's, he's done and different interpretations of him have done, but like, I took some classes in seminary that really helped me to appreciate kind of his deep focus on on grace uh, and on kind of the law and the gospel. Um, and that's a very Lutheran thing, right? Like I kind of found my way to Lutheranism um, in part because it has this very strong understanding of evil and of the devil. Um, mm. And also because it has this beautiful understanding of grace that... Uh, we are not saved by anything that we do, but that the good works that we do are a gift 
from God for us to be able to do them. We do them out of gratitude for God's gift of salvation um, and out of gratitude for the ability to shine God's light into this world. Um, but I like, I got this tattoo when I was having, um, some pretty bad chronic health issues and I just like really felt it, right? Like I'd be up at six o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning, unable to sleep because I was in pain and going like, man, like who will save me from this body of death? Mm. Uh, and I think it's really important for me. I think that a lot of our capitalist, and this is a feature of like what we call, might call late capitalism, right? That like a lot of our capitalist ideology is about, um, kind of the power of positive thinking, uh, which like, to be clear, started in the church, right? Like we are not that far from Marble Collegiate Church where Norman Vincent Peale would speak. Um, and I think that there are a lot of strains in both evangelical and liberal Christianity that are still part of this, like that both engendered this turn among kind of capitalist ideology and also are still complicit in it. Um, but we're part of this this kind of late capitalist idea that that positive thinking is what we need and that positivity will get us where we need to go and will help us be the people that we want to be. And it's really important for me to understand and to kind of hold true to myself that like, actually like, we really are pretty wretched a lot of the time. Uh, Like there, like we live in a fallen world and in a fallen state. And that means that I'm not gonna do the things that I believe with all my heart I should be doing um, just because I'm a creature uh, and that it's God's grace that allows us to have these moments of of awe and of understanding and of transcendence beyond you know this veil of tears not to get too like Mm. old school about it Mm -hmm. but I am kind of old school in some ways um so I think that like it's a really important reminder for me um that God also like meets us in our wretchedness right like that we don't have to have our lives together for God to have favor towards us um, and that in fact, like any idea to the contrary is like extremely anti-biblical and anti-Christian in some ways. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think that that's like one of the reasons why I have that tattoo. It's totally. like part of my guiding orientation towards life. I have always felt that grace is the most anti-capitalist, mm. um, value or I don't know if the right, value is even the right word. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that speaks a lot. I'm sure you get a lot of questions about it. Um, the, how does, uh, how does your, it seems like very rich and deep, uh, you know, religious framework, tradition, orientation, how does that kind of intersect or inform or your politics? That's mm. a question I tend to ask everyone, how, how they make it come together. It could be the other yeah. one, politics informs religion, mm. sometimes religion informs politics, sometimes it's like a third thing altogether, you know. So they're so interconnected for me, right? Because like I had this experience of coming to Christianity in part because um, I was not satisfied with secular political ideology, mm. um, and there was just like a missing ingredient. But I'll say that like, um, so I'm gonna start talking about demons. So let's let's do it. Let's, <laughs> let's just go it. for it. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think for me, a lot of what Christianity offers is the understanding that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the principalities and the uh, evil forces in the heavenly places and, you know, all of that great language from Ephesians, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the translations has the cosmic powers of this present darkness, mm. um, which I think actually helps explain a good amount of what we see in the world. Um, I won't say more than Marxism, but I'll say, like, I think that they're complementary in some very real and critical ways. Uh, so specifically, like, I think this this shows up a lot in kind of two things that are very interconnected in white supremacy and in climate change. Um, so in white supremacy, um, I always think back, like how we understand its functioning in society. Um, I always think back to, uh, you know, George Zimmerman's murder of Trayvon Martin and the verdict came down that uh, they kind of let him off the hook for it um, in a week where the lectionary text for the next Sunday was the Good Samaritan story. Mm. And I think the tendency among liberal religious people um, or people who are really eager to kind of take the Bible and kind of slap it onto what's in the headlines today um, is to say, well, look, George Zimmerman wasn't a good enough neighbor. Like, we, we should all be better neighbors to people. <laughs> and I find that to be, like, really a shallow analysis yeah. um, and one that actually is not at all... Um, consonant with the sort of deep themes and explorations of of the theology of evil and of how evil shows up in our world as demonstrated by Jesus and by kind of the biblical witness. 
Um, I think instead that we can talk about white supremacy as a an idolatry in our society, as a kind of principality or an idol. Um, and William Stringfellow talks a lot about this in his book, Imposters of God, um, which is that all of these idols, these principalities, these sort of big structural systemic forces um, have a kind of life of their own. They may have been created by human beings, mm. but they also devour human lives. Um, mm. They demand human sacrifice. Uh, and they also can manifest in very specific and concrete actions that human beings take towards one another. So I think that it's really f- safe to say that, um, and quite biblical to say, that George Zimmerman was possessed by the demon of white supremacy. Mm. Now, that does not it's not exculpatory in any way. Like that is a deem that he invited in and we have some biblical witnesses as to that being possible. Um, But it is to say that like when we talk about white supremacy, it's not necessarily about an individual failure to act or an Mm -hmm. individual action. It's about this great death dealing system that all of us are complicit in. um, And that is, that functions as all sins do rather like, inertia or gravity which is that it is kind of the default state of being unless we strive against it with all our heart it's almost like you're saying in secular progressive language we would say like it's a systemic sin right. a systemic um problem yes and in christian language almost like pre-modern language we would say it's a demonic problem <laughs> right yeah. right um and understanding demons as like but like also through a lot of christian history like demons have been understood as like you know, manifestations of mental illness or something, or, like, mm-hmm. somebody's possessed by demons because they have epilepsy. And, like, I'm not into that, obviously. Right. Like, I feel like we have we have better tools at our disposal. But, um, I don't know, I, I did this, this thing in seminary where we read um, the story of the garrison demoniac with people who had recently been released from prison. And they were reading the story of this man um, who is shunned by his community and shackled in the graveyard, and they were seeing themselves in this man who was possessed by demons. Mm. Um, and they were seeing themselves in the fact that Jesus's exorcism of the man involves his reconciliation with the community. And they weren't saying that the demons were like criminality or anything like that, but they were seeing these demonic forces as actually being a consequence of rejection and imprisonment by society. Right. That this was something that was introduced to their lives. Um, and that really stuck with me in a mm. really profound way because you know, these were folks who were saying, like, I understand my encounter with this systemic evil in our society as being a demonic encounter. Hmm. Um, and, you know, people can be victims of demons and they can be possessed by demons in ways that kind of make them primarily harms to other people. Um, but I think that, like, that is a religious belief that helps to inform my politics in a broad variety of ways. So I'm going to pivot and talk about climate change yes. for a minute, too, with that. Um, which is to say that, like, I also think that it's a profoundly, ira- it's an understanding of the irrational and as it functions in the human society and in politics, right? That, that we are not talking about systems in which every person is a rational actor and makes decisions. This is a very, like, capitalist way of understanding it, right? Like, mm-hmm. makes decisions based on maximizing their personal benefit. We are instead talking about these narratives, patterns, and beliefs many of which come out of the fear of death or out of kind of death as this sort of uber principality, which is a very Stringfellonian concept that we can talk about in a minute, Um, but that end up animating people in particular ways that perpetuate these patterns across society. So when we're talking about climate change, um, I think the tendency a lot of times is to look at it and say, like, why, haven't, why hasn't society acted yet? The problem is that people don't, like, we can't communicate it well enough, or people are primed to think about short-term gain over long-term consequence, or we have these externalities in our system, and all these things are probably true, but a lot of the problem with climate change is actually that we have a class of people who are benefiting from the current economic system, who are, who refuse to believe that they themselves will be harmed by the unraveling society and in many cases are very aware Mm -hmm. of the consequences of climate change but believe themselves to be so insulated from those consequences that they will keep pursuing the status quo which is a sort of enormity of evil that i think is really hard to comprehend Mm. um and i think especially for like nice liberal folks is like we like i was raised to want to believe that all people are fundamentally good Um, And that we are sort of distracted from that or we make mistakes out of these other concerns. Um, 
I don't think that's the case. And I think that I think that we have all these cases of of these very, very evil happenings that challenge that assertion. Anyways, so you have this So you're talking like executives of ExxonMobil who are paying, you know, to mm-hmm. cover up evidence of carbon in the Okay. Or or also like the financiers, right? Like we're here on Wall Street yeah. actually, which is where my office is very weirdly. Um, and if you look at the window, you can see the stock exchange. Mm-hmm. There are investors in these industries who know very well cli- what climate change is and what it will do and who are investing in luxury bunkers where they can ride it out. Hmm. Um, I think I was really, really influenced by this Jacobin article from many years ago by Peter Fraze, um, which grew into his book Four Futures, hmm. uh, which talks about these sort of platonic ideas of the future with on these axes of scarcity and abundance and hierarchy versus equality. Uh, And he looks at the sort of post-capitalist future that could fit into any one of these four quadrants. And he describes a future that is defined by scarcity uh, because we have not addressed, we have not basically broken through um, kind of the basic limits on resources and hierarchy. And he defines it as a, a world that is characterized as, I believe he says, exterminism, hmm. uh, which is the genocidal war of the rich against the poor. And these people who are in many cases betting on their ability to be part of this class of rich people in this future, some of them believe that we're already like we're already locked into it, so why bother, right? Like this is the Trump administration's argument on um vehicle emission standards is, well, we're, we're already going to exceed the amount of warming we can do, so why bother having emissions regulations? Mm. Um, some of them are so insulated by power and privilege that they are quite literally blinkered to the suffering of people around them. Um, but I think that all of them are part of uh, this system, this operating principality, um, of climate change, of, of capitalism that is going to lead to climate change that will, if we don't fight and organize, um, result in this future that is the genocide of the poor by the rich around the world. And we see that showing up already in different places, right? Like, um, you look at Brazil and you see, uh, I just read recently that the incursion on the Amazon by um, mining companies and by large agribusiness is up 150% since Bolsonaro took office, Mm. because he has said that he does not believe that the Amazon should be protected uh, and it's indigenous people who rely on it and who protect it themselves, right, and participate in its ecosystem should not be protected and it should instead be opened up to this destruction. We are in very serious trouble if the Amazon is destroyed. Uh, it is not just the lungs of our planet. It is also more and more science is revealing the heart of our planet and that it circulates air and other systems around the world through the density of trees and the climate that it creates. Um, and so I think that there is this deep and systemic evil that's operating in all of these different people in all of these different ways. Uh, And I also think that understanding it as such is not as uncommon as we might think, right? Like Mm -hmm. that these pre-modern understandings are still very much with us. Mm -hmm. I'm often fond of saying uh, to folks who want to talk to me about religion that I think that an understanding of supernatural evil is not that uncommon in our world, right? Oh, yeah, like, sure. sure, we have, like, ghosts and demons, but also on the systemic level, right? Like, we we can look at it, we can see that all of these things are connected, that there's a connection between police violence and mass incarceration and um, gentrification and all of these things. But that, in fact, like, the conspiracy of the good is much less common, and that that is something that Christianity offers too, right? Is this, this movement of the Holy Spirit that connects us to all of the people who are acting out of faith and acting out of belief in goodness um, and acting out of hope and of love, uh, that there can be a more powerful force that's connecting all of us across the world and across these different struggles uh, into kind of the movement of redeeming our world from death. Very hopeful note to end on, but I still have more questions. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, just to clarify, the... You talked about the demon of white supremacy and perhaps George Zimmer was possessed by that. What do you feel these bankers who are financing, investing in luxury bunkers, are they possessed? Some people say they're possessed by greed. Yeah. Right? Some people, it's like capitalism per yeah. se. I don't know if you have a strong view one way or another as to what the 
overarching principality is. Right. Uh, I mean, I'm of the slight point of view that I, that part of, I think there's some people who very much know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And making deal-about choices, and you can argue that's very callous or what have you. Um, but they're also, I, I feel part of the, part of what we have is a perfect disaster in a sense mm-hmm. that there are so many complexities introduced to things such that, you know, maybe you're not the banker, but maybe you're the IT person mm-hmm. who sets up the banker's computer right. or the building cleaner who cleans the building. And um, it, it it makes evil very banal. Um, mm-hmm. And then it leads to, like, this domino effect, and the next thing you know, we're all dead. So I'm curious, <laughs> like, where h- how would you diagnose the, yeah. the demon? So I think we have to look at what people are worshipping, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what is the idol here? What is... What are people willing to sacrifice billions of people for? Hmm. Uh, and I think that what we're talking about in the end is like the return on investment. Okay. Uh, so if we look at all of the fossil fuel infrastructure that's been built, we cannot extract all of the tar sands and burn them and still remain within a climate that will allow like south pacific islands to remain above water right and i think that like it's something that um that this but but people are still interested in doing so because they've invested money in it right Mm -hmm. and you've got to get that return on investment um which is like a function of capitalism right is like this worship of capital um and there's a lot of different i'm not the first person to say this obviously like this like this is coming from a long long tradition of people diagnosing the problem as capital mm-hmm. um which is deeply connected to greed right uh which is deeply connected to uh the desire to avoid death by any means necessary right like to to be so wealthy that you can stave off like normal aging that you can that your name will remain forever like the rockefellers or mm-hmm. the you know morgan um and that you can pass that wealth onto your children and ensure that they will still have a good life even though you are not personally around to see it i think that all of those things are in the end like efforts to fight against death um they're efforts to attain immortality Mm. but the biblical witnesses that the answer to death is not immortality right it's resurrection um and that accepting death as part of of life and as something that jesus is always working to overcome uh is the way towards an actual real eternal life so i know that we're kind of getting a little off topic here um but i i think that it's this this look at capital and that if you look back uh there were some really amazing uh works of the liberation theologians of south and central america in the 60s 50s 60s and 70s who were diagnosing the problem as exactly that and these were people who were seeing the enclosure of the commons who are seeing the destruction of peasant life of campesino life um and there's a collection called the idols of death and the god of life that looks at all of these idols and that instead says like worshiping any of these things will result in will demand human sacrifice will demand that you kill people to attain Mm. your immortality your favor with these false gods um and instead we need to follow the god of life like that is the one god that can liberate us and set us free yeah, so it's interesting. You're bringing up both the demonic frame, but also the idol frame and defining in some ways. We had talked a little bit earlier about like, what is an idol? The greatest idols are those that demand human sacrifices. Yeah. So what, what, whose bodies are we sacrificing in this day and age? And earlier you talked a little bit about the way you see which the border wall that's currently being right. fought over, probably funded. How does that connect to all of this? Totally. So this is part of a... Um an ideology and actually a, a sort of way of responding to climate change that Christian Prenti calls the armed lifeboat. Uh, and I think it's something that implicates all of us as Americans. So for American citizens or green card holders who are listening to this, like I think that it's something that we all have to, are all called to resist. Uh, but the idea is this, that with climate change, we are going to see mass migration of hundreds of millions, if not billions of people. Uh, because in part, um, large swaths of our planet will not be survivable by human beings um, by the end of the century. Like it will simply be too hot for normal human like physiology to keep functioning. Uh, in addition, um, 
along with the kind of capitalist processes driving climate change, there's also existing dispossession of indigenous people and of their lands. So if you look at the people who are coming to our southern border and crossing through Mexico, which has been turned into an extension of the American border in many ways, many of them are from indigenous communities. Mm. Indigenous communities are being threatened by um, palm oil plantations whose lands are being taken uh, by these governments that have been seized by the right. Um, And the response to that, like the response to climate change can be any number of things, right? Like our wealth in this country that we have gained improperly off of the exploitation of third world people here and abroad um, could be distributed globally and funding projects of resiliency that allow people to develop more, um, you know, resilient agricultural systems, things like that. We could be giving wealth back to countries that we've stripped it of. But instead what we're doing is we are taking that ill-gotten wealth as a country and we are building a wall. Um, Now, walls are not effective if they're not manned, um, if there's not personnel guarding them. And so if you look at the plans for the wall, some of the prototypes, uh, I don't know if these are ones that they're going to build soon, but some of the prototypes that exist are actually two walls with a road between them that will be patrolled by armored personnel carriers. This is preparation for climate change, which will displace millions and millions of people across South and Central America soon, um, along with the sort of rapacious designs of American capital. And it is saying that the response to climate change must be to hold on to what we have and to massacre people who are coming to take it. Um, And I think that that is like national security is an idol. Yep, Um, definitely. And I think that that's something that is our society is demanding that we worship, that we put national security above human life um, and that we are willing to sacrifice children to make that a reality. And it's absurd if you think about it, right? Like how can we have, can we have a society that's predicated on like mass murder? I mean, we have one, right? Like that, that's what indigenous genocide was. That's what slavery was. Um, you know, are we willing to go a different way now or are we going to keep in these kind of blood-drenched processes as we move forward into the era of climate change? Um, I think that's the question that's before us. And I think it's a deeply theological question, right? Is like, can we go a different way? Can we repent? of our sins um or are we going to be continuing down this path that i think will rightfully lead god to judge america yeah um we at today's ash wednesday Mm -hmm. what do you plan on doing if you plan on doing anything for lent Mm -hmm. so i want to be more diligent about my um a practice that I've had before in the past of praying the headlines of the paper, hmm. where I'll pull up the New York Times homepage, the Washington Post homepage, um, and I will pray prayers for every single thing that's on like the main landing page of that website, um, which I do as a practice to remind myself that I need to pray for my enemies, because mm. uh, I think it can be very hard to remember to do that when you're seeing how deeply evil the systems in which we reside are, right? Like, how do you pray for Donald Trump? Yeah. Um, I'm going to try to do that. Uh, and I'm also going to go to, I'm going to go to church tonight. Um, I go to a small Lutheran church in Washington Heights and I will attend there and receive ashes and be reminded that from dust I came into dust I will return. Do you feel climate change is God's judgment on us? Or do you think that makes sense? Like there's one way to read it as like the sin, we're reaping this, the, the wages of sin or death. Mm-hmm. Or do you have a more hopeful you. It- <laughs> right. I mean, I don't think you can say climate change is God's judgment on us because climate change is going to hurt first mm. the poor of the world, yep. the people who are least responsible for it, which yep. is not justice. And it's not the justice that we've seen from God yeah, in the yeah. Bible. Um, I think that climate change is a sin, uh, really, basically. I think it's a sin. Um, and I think it's a sin that with all sinful systems, we're all implicated in, right? Like, you know, whatever AOC drives her car, like these are false right wing talking points. Um, because we know that we live in a society that is built on perpetuating this sin and we need to change those foundations if we're going to resist it ultimately. Um, I do think, like, I've been asked before, like, what gives me hope? Because I'm a climate organizer, right? And I think that I, in some ways, I intentionally came into climate change from issues of economic justice and kind of labor organizing and other issues because it seemed like a place that needed hope the most. Mm. And I rarely feel hopeless. Um... And I think that I have a lot of hope that 
God's promise never falters, that God's fidelity to us has never changed and will never change, and that God is working at all times for the redemption of the world. I don't know what that looks like, but I do know that God will not allow like mass murder to be the final answer in human history. I think that there's the possibility of what a friend of mine calls uh, post-extinction eschatology, <laughs> um, which is like deeply terrifying to me. Yeah. But um, I'll say that like I am less concerned about human existence than I am about being one of the thousands, maybe millions of people in America who survive um, in a society that is reliant on like the bones and bodies of children and of people from the third world to continue on. And I, I'll admit that that's true already, right? Like yeah. we can't talk about climate change as being independent of the function of colonialism and of genocide and white supremacy. And in some ways it's the final culmination of this. Um, I think that the belief that your riches will insulate from you, you from it is a false delusion. Um, I think that God will not allow that to happen. Mm. Uh, no God of justice would allow that to happen. But I am afraid of, um, I'm afraid of complicity in some ways, right? And I'm afraid of, uh, of my own, of, of being compromised by the system which we reside. And we all are, um, but I'm just afraid of the worsening of that, I suppose, and of like myself uh, becoming an idol worshiper to save my own life. Yeah. So you're not afraid that we will die. You're afraid of who we will who we will become right before we die. Right. And I think that God's God's promise, right, is that like death is not the ultimate moral power mm-hmm. of the universe. Um, there's a really amazing William Stringfellow uh, homily that he gave to Dan Berrigan and the Catonsville Nine, um, who were amazing Catholic activists in the 60s, who broke into the, um, the uh, draft, the Selective Service Office in Catonsville, Maryland, seized draft files and burned them with homemade napalm uh, and famously said, you know, apologies, my friends, for the fact, fracturing of good order for the burning of paper instead of children. Mm. Uh, and in the homily that William Stringfellow gave before he, before they went into the trial, I'm going to paraphrase here. Um, he said something like, friends, remember that the only power that the state has is the power of death. The state can imprison you. It can deny you your rights. It can even kill you. But in the end, the promise of God is that the power of death is overcome. And so the state can do nothing to us which we need fear. Hmm. And I want to keep that faith, right? Like, I desperately want to keep that faith. And I trust with God's grace that I will be able to, that I am not capable of it on my own. Um, but, you know, that's that's my hope. That's my um, my fear and also my, my, my prayer kind of for the future is that we can remain faithful in these times. You should, like, give sermons. <laughs> Seriously, I feel like I got three sermons <laughs> in a span of an hour. Thank you. Do you preach at all? I Sometimes, yeah. Okay. Um, I've preached before, and um, you should go on, not like, for a, some months. You should go a, on a sermon tour. Like, I'm yeah. serious. Like, you start, <laughs> I'm going to start marketing your services. Um, I mean, I'll happily preach. If you want to contact me, um, <laughs> I, I love preaching. I took classes on it. I'd love to do more of it. Okay, yeah. I'll... Do you have a, like, a website? No, <laughs> okay. no, I don't have a website. All right, so we, we can post like a link to your stuff at the bottom thing. Yeah. Thank you right. so much for <laughs> agreeing to talk to me again yeah. for the second time. Um, really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. And that was Shay O'Reilly. He's a climate organizer and DSA eco-socialist um, member. That was, as you can tell, a very passionate, articulate, theologically dense and rich um, interview. Didn't really expect to get like, three sermons condensed into one. I think what I appreciated the most um, upon reflecting on his conversation and our conversation was the ways in which he was able to deploy sort of the specific um, resources within the Christian tradition, you know, the ways in which demons is talked about, which an idol is talked about. To be honest, these are um, yes, also Judeo-Christian. Um, and, you know, the way he talks about God's covenant and promises and the way he's able to integrate that with very real-life political issues and systemic thought. It's very rare, actually, I find, to find that kind of coupling of 
really nuanced and dense and rich theological analysis, as well as um, similarly rich, dense, and nuanced political analysis. Uh, sometimes I think religious leftists or people on the left get you know, accused of watering down theology, kind of, you know, it just becomes a, like, just love your neighbors yourself, be loving, treat people as made an image of God, which is obviously, I think, totally fine, but it is nice and refreshing once in a while to encounter, like, a different perspective, and I think it, it sort of does show, I think, the ways in which um, the we religion, despite all its weirdness, has, like, really sp- specific and helpful resources for dealing with our modern problems, um, you know, thinking about demons and thinking about idols is uh, actually can be a very helpful lens. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation. We have his email address and his Twitter handle on the podcast notes. And once again, you're listening to Religion and Socialism. It's a production of the Democratic Socialists of America. This podcast is produced by Devin Brisky. I'm Sarah Nguyen. And we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Thank you so much.